0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenues History Podcast, episode number 63 Marx, McCabe, and Maxwell. Last time we talked about the San Francisco debate between two Pacific Press editors, Francis Nichols and Alonzo Baker, with the atheist Maynard Shipley. We also talked about the famous Scopes trial of 1925, and the death of William Jennings Bryan. Shall we go on? George McCready Price was stuck in England during the Scopes trial and the San Francisco evolution debates, but hey, that all worked out. A general conference officer once wrote Price to encourage him, quote, I am sure that you have not forgotten the nationwide publicity that you were given in connection with the Scopes trial in Dayton, Tennessee, when William Jennings Bryan Mentioned you. Price hadn't forgotten. Price would never forget that moment. The GC officer assumed that being mentioned by the most famous fundamentalist in the world on the biggest stage would be a mountaintop experience for Price. And he couldn't have been more wrong. Price felt betrayed. By Brian, because Brian had admitted on the witness stand that he didn't actually believe the world was created in six 24-hour days. And this betrayal was more than just personal. Price saw it as a betrayal of the cause. Brian was the most famous fundamentalist in the world, and at the moment, the spotlight shone brightest upon him, and when it did, he choked. Brian was the man who could headline issues of Signs of the Times with honorifics like the menace of Darwinism, the despair of the philosophers, right? Like, this is what they called him in Signs of the Times. And he betrayed the cause, at least in the opinion of Price. Just before the Scopes trial, a Canadian journal called Saturday Night, that's what the journal's called, they wrote, quote, we should say that Brian would find his spiritual home in the bosom of the Church of the Seventh-day Adventists, who are the most dyed-in-the-wool logical fundamentalists that we know of, end quote. Saturday night may not have meant that as a compliment, I don't know, but but Adventists took it as one. Alonzo Baker considered it, quote, a compliment of which we hope we are worthy, end quote. It took some time for Price to sour on Bryan when the English evolutionist and ex-Catholic priest Joseph McCabe warned his friends that there were 12 million closet fundamentalists in England waiting for a William Jennings Bryan type person to muster them for war. Price remarked, quote, very evidently, what an awful day it would be for English rationalism if some English Brian should arouse the whole nation, end quote. McCabe didn't miss an opportunity to challenge Price to a debate in London, perhaps fearing that Price might be that other Brian who has come to England to awake fundamentalists there for war. McCabe needn't had worried too much about an English Brian arousing England to fundamentalism, okay? By the 1920s, Really, the only significant group in England still resisting Darwin were members of the Victoria Institute. The Victoria Institute had been founded, uh, to not just to resist evolution, but to resist naturalistic evolution. Okay, and there was plenty of, plenty of uh, of believers of Christians there in England who who didn't who just accepted evolution. Um, the vast majority of them did. They just rejected the kind of atheism that often came with it, and and believed that God was somehow involved in creating via evolution, okay? Uh, the Victoria, So the Victoria Institute, that it was founded to kind of resist that naturalistic evolution, but it was 30 years past its prime by the time George McCready Price became a member. And Price was invited to present his views. His address was titled, Revelation and Evolution, Can They Be Harmonized? I'll let you guess what the answer is to his question. Anyways, the... the the title alone shows how much Price misjudged his audience. The British didn't see it as a choice between divine revelation and evolution. Like I said, they believe God created using evolution. So the Victoria Institute wasn't officially anti-evolution, it was just anti kind of naturalism, the idea that life evolved without God. And so I say Price misjudged his audience because in making his case against evolution He lumps the Darwinian naturalists and the Christian evolutionists together. Price was clear on this, quote, It is only some modern theologians who, by an utter confusion of thought, have tried to smooth out all difference between the two ideas, end quote. Okay, the Institute was virtually founded on the idea that there were important differences between the two groups, between theistic evolutionists and naturalists, but Price just kind of lumps them all together and says, you know, you either choose evolution or you choose creation. So the Victoria Institute would go on to give Price an award, but members of the Victoria Institute complained about his presentation. It was too polarizing, too divisive, dare I say, too American. They called him a bull in the china shop, and it should have been clear to everyone that anyone wanting to play William Jennings Bryan in England would have an uphill battle. Okay, the the English just weren't... Whatever McCabe believed about England being this kind of powder keg of sleeping fundamentalism, it it just wasn't true. It just wasn't true. And Price's debate with McCabe was a mess. He shies away from public debates in general, Price does. But this one he accepted, maybe because... um, you know, this was the year of the Scopes trial. This was the year of Baker and Nickel uh, debating in San Francisco. And By the way, Baker and Nickel, they could count on a reasonably open-minded audience in San Francisco. In London, where most people accepted evolution and considered Price a boorish American novelty, Price could not count on an open-minded audience. And that's why I say that the debate was a mess because it was just all, everything was stacked against Price. And McCabe, obviously, I don't know if he, if he really believed that there were um, uh, 12 million closet fundamentalists in England. I don't know if, if Price really thought he could arouse 12 million closet fundamentalists in England, but both McCabe and Price were mistaken on this point, as it turns out. We didn't have a powder keg of English fundamentalists waiting to be activated, waiting, waiting to be called to arms. But that doesn't mean the debate wasn't interesting. The 29-year-old editor of Present Truth, which is an Adventist paper in England at the time, he was there. His name was Arthur S. Maxwell, later to be known as Uncle Arthur, by generations of Adventists for his beautiful Bible stories. You've seen those, those blue books in doctor's office and dentist's office, uh, offices for decades. Maxwell's gift for writing was apparent, and he manages to situate the debate in a historical and a cultural context in the opening sentence. He writes, quote, while America goes into hysterics over the trial of a Tennessee teacher for advocating evolution in his school, England sits back with a bored and cynical smile and says, what's all the fuss about? End quote. The English, Maxwell tells us, think that anyone who doubts evolution, quote, must be half-witted or an American, end quote. As if there's a difference. Anyways, they considered, these English people did, they considered Americans 50 years behind the times, right? Like, why are you guys arguing about evolution? Just accept it and move on. What's the big deal? For his part, Price saw England as behind America because they didn't see the danger that evolution posed. So as you can tell, this debate is going to be, it really is going to be an uphill battle, okay? You're going to have to convince your audience, which is inclined to be hostile against you, you're going to have to convince them to uh, to care about something they don't currently care about. So McCabe challenges Price to a debate. Probably for the same reason Shipley challenged the Adventists in San Francisco. Publicity. Maxwell gives his explanation for the debate. Quote, As everybody now knows, Professor Price is the one prominent scientist in the world who has dared openly to oppose the evolution theory and to expose its fallacies by voice and pen. He is the Luther of the Geological Reformation. Even William Jennings Bryan looked to him for the scientific backing for his fundamentalist propaganda. Defeat Price in public, thought the rationalists, and the head of this anti-evolution movement would be lopped off and what better place for the execution than the Queen's Hall, London, end quote. Okay, Maxwell, Price is not a prominent scientist, nor is he the only well-known person using science to oppose evolution. And don't you think it's a little over the top to say he was the Luther of a new reformation? I mean, sure, Brian looked to Price for advice from time to time, but it was clear at the Scopes trial that he didn't understand Price's ideas at all. And did the rationalists really think that by defeating Price in debate the head of this anti-evolution movement would be lopped off? I mean, prominent or not, most people didn't even know who Price was, especially in England. Alas, this was the fundamentalist era, where whether for or against evolution, many of these leading men, and they were all men, thought and wrote and spoke in these grandiose, gladiatorial tones. They acted as if civilization was at stake. It was war. Almost nothing of what Maxwell wrote there was strictly true. But he wrote in his moment, he described it as he felt it, as it seemed at the time, right? These are polarizing times. Maxwell went on to say Price was, quote, like Galileo, he brought a new idea to those who did not desire it, end quote. Which is funny because if you've read any books on, on, uh, on evolution in the last, I don't know, 75, 100 years, uh, it's usually the evolutionists who are invoking Galileo, right? They're the poor, persecuted scientists, persecuted by the church, and uh, apparently Galileo is the patron saint of anybody who wants to see themselves as a victim. I, I say that, but I, I really admire Maxwell's writing. I mean, it's it's just it's beautiful, and I can see where these uh, these gifts that are later going to entrance generations of Adventists are gonna are coming from, right? Well, if you're hoping to get in the counter of the debate from Maxwell's pen in present truth, you're going to be disappointed. We got a nice summary of both sides of the San Francisco debate in Adventist Papers and Signs of the Times uh, after their debate was over. But in present truth, we only get Price's side. And when you read it, you'll be excused for thinking that Price so pummeled McCabe into the ground that McCabe never said a word the whole debate. I mean, it's almost like he doesn't even exist. Maxwell even got a hold of Price's notes and printed the words Price never actually got around to saying. He didn't have enough time to say them in the debate. Well, it was probably for the best as the crowds heckled Price. Price wrote, quote, I supposed a thousand people were on their feet at once yelling and arguing with me, end quote. After four tough years trying to stir up England, Price was summoned home in 1928 by the General Conference. Now, the General Conference paid his expenses and his salary until he found the teaching job at what is now Andrews University. Now, the school didn't have enough room or or maybe budget for him, so the General Conference continued paying half of his salary, which is evidence, I think, of how valuable Price was to the denomination. Upon returning to America, George McCready Price re-entered the public debate over the teaching of evolution in schools. The Scopes trial had been a high point in this debate, but it hadn't settled the issue. Price published an article explaining why evolutionists are so eager to teach evolution in public schools. And the picture he used to to summarize or illustrate the article, it wasn't a picture of him, the author. It wasn't a picture of Darwin or some prominent evolutionist. It wasn't a picture of William Jennings Bryan or some prominent fundamentalist. The picture Price used to illustrate his article, or perhaps it was the editors who, who did this, uh, was a picture of Karl Marx. The consistent evolutionist, Price wrote, is also anti-biblical and anti-Christian. Now, this is an underappreciated element of the fundamentalist era. The way they packaged a bunch of issues together. You didn't just buy into one idea you bought into a bundle of ideas. You were anti-evolution, anti-socialism, pre-millennial, evangelical, and so on. And this did two things. First, it molded fundamentalists, religiously and politically. Second, it made it harder to persuade people. Because picture it like selling books door to door. If I want to convince you to accept the Sabbath, I sell you a book on the Sabbath. And if you accept it, then you join me as a Sabbath keeper, right? You're in, you belong, we're on the same team. But fundamentalists were not selling you one book. To join the movement, they were trying to sell you an armload of books on a range of issues. And most people aren't going to read 10 books on 10 different issues and agree with you on all 10 but they tied all of these issues together. So if perchance you did agree with them on these 10 issues and you did join, you have so much in common and it, and it and that's where the the molding comes in, right Like these fundamentalists are generally cut from the same mold or made with the same mold and they're they're very much like each other because the the cost to buy in to the to the program is so high like you have to believe a number of these these things these issues in this bundle, uh, that once you're in, it's like it's like family, right? But you know, having to kind of buy in politically as well as religiously and kind of philosophically as well, uh, you had to agree with them on a bunch of things to to really be in. And we've talked about how these fundamentalists didn't really believe the earth was created in six days. So why did they fight evolution, right? William Jennings Bryan fought evolution purely because he was afraid of what we call, social Darwinism. If people began to act as if it's survival of the fittest, then society is going to crumble. We need the principles of Jesus, loving your neighbor, putting others first, and so on. It wasn't so much evolution itself that people were afraid of, but the implications of evolution, the moral implications, the spiritual implications of of evolution. They were afraid it would make people atheists. It would destroy the fabric of society and it would mean the end of democracy. I mean, look at those Russians in 1917. Communism wasn't exactly friendly to Christianity and the theological liberals who accepted evolution tended to be politically liberal too. So it was natural to connect to their theology and their politics. The connection between fundamentalist politics and theology was strong, but not very deep because often you're going to read adventists condemning things like marxist socialism and we all understand what they mean but the phrase is clumsy and imprecise from coming from a a political science background okay i mean the time around the time that they're using phrases like marxist socialism which george mccready price uses i mean you have you have variations of socialism going on you know warring in russia at that time between trotsky and stalin right like who who really represents true Marxism? You know that's kind of what they're what they're arguing. I shouldn't say that they're arguing. I mean, you know, Stalin exiles, Trotsky, and wasn't much of an argument. But you understand what I'm saying? Like, there's no kind of like one socialism. Chinese communism today is different from Soviet communism uh, some decades ago. Uh, but they just kind of sum it all up with phrases like Marxist socialism, right? Where where Marxist is more of a a moral curse. You know, you can just put Marxist on anything, and, and that signifies to the readers that this thing is bad, okay? Uh, it's like, you know, Joseph McCabe was a, a Franciscan priest. I think in one case, Price calls him a Jesuit priest, which is probably an ex-Jesuit priest, which is probably an honest mistake. But I think if you're an Avenist and you're listening to this, you, you get how these kind of these moral curses work. You just put Jesuit on something, and it doesn't really matter what comes after that. It could be something nice like, You know Jesuit puppies, and you think, "Oh man, somehow these puppies are bad." (laughs) I don't know. Uh, These words just take on these these this kind of loaded meaning that goes beyond its technical definition. Okay, so when they use Marxism, it's not because a bunch of Adventists have studied Marx and they 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 are familiar with his teaching and are going to refute it line by line. It's just they just know Marxism is bad. All right, so they kind of they paint with these really broad political brushes okay Marxism equals bad socialism equals bad and uh, and you know democracy is good or at least it's better and so this is it's not a real deep understanding of of politics around the world it's just painting with a really broad brush anyways in, in some ways the avenist politics of the fundamentalist era are a complete 180 from where they were in the late 1800s. I mean, the the political concern back then was these evangelicals trying to pass Sunday laws. The church developed this religious liberty apparatus to fight against those evangelicals. And now in the 20s, and the 1920s, the threat was socialism, right? That's how they saw it. And, And Adventism's allies during this time were those same evangelicals who were trying to pass Sunday laws. That doesn't mean that uh, Avenas stopped opposing Sunday laws, and it doesn't mean that the Evangelicals stopped trying to pass Sunday laws. Okay, The fundamentalist leader, William Bell Riley, who appreciated the work of George McCready Price and quoted him, nevertheless complained that of those opposing Sunday laws, Avenas were first among them. And then he went on ranting about Avenas for a couple pages in his journal. Anyway, from the start, Price said his problem with evolution was "Quote philosophical and moral," end quote. Right? Notice he didn't say scientific. The fundamentalist movement arose during World War One because, well, isn't Germany where higher criticism and evolution took root? I mean, look at those, look at what those liberal ideas do to people. Of course, plenty of professedly Christian nations started wars too, but there seemed to be something different about this new Germany, this World War One era Germany. So it wasn't just a theory to fundamentalists, right? I want you to get inside their head. They believed Germany was the poster child of where evolution would lead America. And when it came to the fight to prevent public schools from teaching evolution, we have to keep in mind that in many cases, a majority of a child's education throughout the 19th century was at home. Okay? And the white only got to the third grade. But by 1917, the year of the Russian Revolution, every state in America had finally passed laws requiring kids to be in schools. And what you have is this kind of culture shock of education being a kind of luxury, you know, going from being a kind of luxury. In the 1800s, you just sent your kids to school if you could afford it, if you could spare them from the farm. It went So it kind of went from being like a nice luxury Um to the government telling parents that you had better take your kids to school or else. And then when those schools start teaching your children evolution or something that you disagree with, I mean, no doubt this is going to create a lot of turmoil in society, especially among these Christians. So to fundamentalists, that seemed like the footsteps of socialism. Uh, the, The state is telling my kids they have to go to school and learn things I morally object to. Yeah, the footsteps of socialism, which, wherever they looked around the world, they saw that socialism was bad for freedom of religion. What makes this interesting is that avenus around the world viewed socialism a little differently than their American cousins. While Price was in England, C.F. McVeigh wrote an article for Present Truth expressing great sympathy for the goals of socialism. He said that Christians and atheists both desire to live in, quote, a state of human brotherhood where cooperation and justice would supplant competition and greed, end quote, and that there would needs to be a revolution before this can happen. Okay, this is an Adventist writing in England, and this is funny because the American Stanley Porter wrote in Signs of the Times that socialism was a pipe dream that, quote, promises to its adherents a temporal reign of righteousness, peace, and prosperity, end quote. In other words, Socialism is a rival messiah, right? In Stanley Porter's view, socialism is a rival messiah to Jesus. Socialism will not fix greed, Porter argues, because greed is a sin problem, not a politics problem. Now, McVeigh, back in England, would agree with Porter there, but still called socialism a beautiful theory and ended with this line, quote, "'Christ will return, and in the new world, with his redeemed people,' bring about the fulfillment of socialism's dream, end quote. So that just gives you a very, very, very brief glimpse at how an avenus fundamentalist and a European Adventist, right, both conservative theologically, might approach the same topic. They both agree that there will be no earthly utopias because of sin. Design the best system you want, but people will still ruin it. The difference is that for the fundamentalist avenus well, he rejects the socialism, the socialist uh, outright for its godly creed, godless creed, I should say. The difference is that for the fundamentalist Adventist, well, he rejects the socialist uh, outright because of his godless creed. While the European Adventist thinks the socialist isn't far from the kingdom, and wants to baptize him. Now we could spend a whole episode on Adventist politics. Maybe we should do that sometime. That'd be fun. But. This is just, I just want to give you a tiny little micro shot, uh, you know, to remind you that not every avenus was a fundamentalist avenus and that the difference between them can sometimes be subtle, but important. And it's also to fill in the picture a little more. We've been zoomed in talking a lot about evolution over the past few episodes, but avenus fundamentalists were about more than resisting modernism and evolution. And once you become aware of the political views of avenus fundamentalists and not just the ideas but the language they use, you realize how these same ideas and this same language still influences evangelicals and Adventists today, even if they no longer call themselves fundamentalists. And this is important because you see Adventism during the fundamentalist era, Adventism in America, right, kind of aligning itself with a very, very, very particular political, I don't want to say party, but, but kind of class, right, cluster, of political ideas that kind of will put Adventism in the corner politically going forward. Anyways, George McCready Price's reputation may not have been built on his political analysis, but you cannot separate his science from his politics, from his religion. As we've said, it is a package deal, and you take it or you leave it. And this leads us to talk about the legacy of Price and the thing he championed. Adventist fundamentalism. Adventist fundamentalism is going to drop into the background in the next few episodes, so it's worth kind of wrapping up Price and the movement which he championed. After Price died in 1967, the Canadian Union messenger, an Adventist paper in Canada, lionized him in just quintessential Canadian fashion, okay? The paper called Price a distinguished Canadian. <laughs> I just I love that because others had no problem calling him the second Luther, you know, or Galileo, and I just, you know, I don't know, it just strikes me as typical understated uh, Canadianness, you know? It's like, what's the best encomium that we can bestow upon Price? Let's just call, he's distinguished. He's a distinguished Canadian and that's 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 all that matters. Anyways, the, the the standard obituary that ran in several Avenist papers quoted one of Price's enemies as saying, "The influence of Price is staggering." The obituary itself makes this comment: quote, "Probably few Seventh-day Adventists, if any, have made so great an impact beyond the confines of the Adventist Church as George McCready Price." End quote. Now you see, we've talked in a previous episode about how Price was a self-made innovator like Kellogg, but that he never achieved the kind of place Kellogg achieved in the Adventist church history, in Adventist church history, despite people constantly praising Price for being the next Martin Luther and the prophet, he was called that too, despite being called the foremost authority on creationism in the world, despite being quoted by the most prominent fundamentalists of his day, Price's legacy is strange. I mean... Kellogg got kicked out of the church for heresy, more or less, and more Avenists still know about him than they know about George McCready Price. After Price died, one Avenist wrote, quote, Professor Price is a man worth remembering. End quote. And yet, many Avenists have forgotten him. A major reason why Price was forgotten, I believe, is because fundamentalism died just before he did. Fundamentalism became a bad word. And I talked about this in an article I wrote for Spectrum on Adventist fundamentalism, where church leaders, beginning in the '60s, uh, began to distance themselves from the word fundamentalism. Right, they wanted nothing to do with it. And but I think there's another reason Price has kind of disappeared from from the Adventist consciousness, and that's because some of Price's ideas were outdated. And if your ideas are somewhat outdated, then your books aren't likely to keep finding new readers. Price also had the misfortune of seeing his legacy begin to be dismantled towards the end of his life. Price, for instance, rejected the geologic column, which is about how the same layers of rock around the world tell the story of Earth's history, right? They're generally found in the same order around the world. Well, Price didn't believe there was any rhyme or reason to these layers of rock, but his own student, Harold W. Clark, did. Now, Clark had taken Price's place teaching at Pacific Union College and used Price's textbook for years— But after Clark became the first Adventist to get a graduate degree in biology from the University of California, after going on several field expeditions to study rock formations for himself, Clark came to accept the geologic column, as many Adventist scientists have done since then. Price bit into his former student hard. Price blamed the University of California for corrupting Clark. He said Clark had chosen Tobacco-smoking, Sabbath-breaking, God-defying evolutionists over him. Price even threatened to sue Clark for libel and slander, which is something Price does uh, habitually, let's just say, throughout his letters to people. He wanted the Adventist church to set up a tribunal to judge between Price and Clark. And Price stopped short of calling Clark a charlatan, okay, but, but only just barely, because Instead of just calling him a charlatan, uh, he writes that he's thinking of, quote, an ugly word which people use to signify a man who claims to have scientific knowledge which he does not possess. It is from the Italian, through the French. It begins with C and it ends with the letter N. But I am not going to use it, for it is a sort of word which no avanist ought to use toward another Avonist, even if he should think it appropriate, end quote. So, yeah, charlatan. Boy, is fundamentalism fun. Price was also a complete racist, believing uh, that, uh, as he wrote in one of his poems, quote, The poor little fellow who went to the South got lost in the forest dank. His skin grew black as the fierce sun beat and scorched his hair with its tropical heat, and his mind became a blank. So, yeah. His combative personality, the decline of his fundamentalism, his racism, and the fact that he reacted terribly... To his students updating his ideas all of that I think hurts his legacy it okay, makes it hard for for his influence to carry on now toward the end of his life he wrote on prophecy He wrote a uh, commentary on Daniel and, and I know a number of people uh, who have read that book or at least are familiar with that book but I, I've met very few Avenists who are familiar with his life as a whole or how he fit into the world of his time it's, it's even despite these reasons why he might not be remembered today. It, I don't think that these reasons are, are, are the whole story of why he's not being remembered today, but there's certainly a big, uh, some big reasons as to why he's not remembered today. But look in judging the man, it's worth keeping in mind how he began. I mean, he clung to creationism as a way of keeping his faith. Evolution deeply tempted him and so he fought that dragon his whole life. And perhaps that explains why he was so defensive and just mean to Howard Clark. Some of it was pride, to be sure, but it was also a way to keep his faith. I mean, it wasn't really a big deal to accept the geologic column, at least not in hindsight, okay? Like I said, a scientists after Price uh, would accept it. But Price couldn't allow the evolutionists to have an inch in his life, or he feared they'd take more. So maybe, maybe it was there were some personal reasons, right, for acting the way that he acted. Both Price and Kellogg were men of science, wrestling with the latest ideas, trying to lay a foundation for the future. And both were wrong in a lot of their ideas, okay? But Kellogg endured, in part because he built an institution and a brand, and in part because his ideas transcended his cultural moment. A hundred years later, good health has never been more popular. On the other hand, evolution has prevailed. Price was a culture warrior, and when the war was over and the culture changed, he was left behind. At the end of the day, however, it wasn't an exaggeration to say that Price was the most well-known and respected Avenist outside of the Avenist church, and that little country teacher from Canada with no scientific training who belonged to a small group of weird Christians somehow became a name on the lips of the most prominent fundamentalist Christians in America. There was no path to follow, right? Price had to find his own way in an increasingly hostile world as a member of a church with little scientific interest. And he essentially created creationism as a mode of thinking scientifically about the Bible without abandoning faith. Cultural earthquakes were shaking his world, but Price charted his own way through it. And he did it, I think, pretty well. I mean, whatever you think of his views... You have to respect that. George McCready Price was his own man, and he built he, he built this kind of uh, tradition. He built this field of study and inquiry uh, as a result. Now, next time, we're going to turn our attention back to W.A. Spicer, the man who replaced A.G. Daniels as General Conference President. We're going to see how the rest of the Adventist Church is handling the Roaring Twenties. So, we'll see you next time. <music> This episode of the Adventist History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology, and Marxist socialism. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is AvenusHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in 7th Avenue's History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at Avenue'sHistoryProject.org. And we're gonna keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website, you can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay. I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.